You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. The Long Form Podcast is brought to you today by Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the United States. Wonder Capital says you can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash longform. That's wonder, W-U-N-D-E-R, capital.com slash longform. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Thanks, Wonder Capital. Hello. Will Aaron Lammer. Hey. What's going Thanks on, man? Calling me. <laughs> I'm here in New Orleans uh, in the lovely French Quarter. Uh, I have not slept for a while. There's drunk people on the street. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I've, I've, um, well, I'm well slept. I'm just living my normal life. I'm unlike you, uh, not traveling around America playing concerts every night. Uh, that uh, that is true. That is true. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna have to ask a uh, sincere question here, which is uh, who's on the show this week? <laughs> Who did I interview this week, Aaron? This week on the show, you interviewed Emily Witt. Oh, Emily Witt! This is a fantastic conversation. Emily Witt has a new book out called Future Sex. I've been following her writing for years. So I was in M plus one, London Review of Books. It's really the first thing I've read that tackles sex in the era of the internet. And it's a fascinating book that I highly recommend. And we had a great conversation about it. I'm glad this is happening. I've been feeling like the podcast has been a little prude, to be honest. So I'm glad we're going to just yes. get into it and talk about sex. Well, I mean, you know, as you and I know, among the stories that get posted to long form, sex is probably the most clickable topic. It is the topic the readers are the most interested in. And yet, we consistently fail to find a lot of really great sex writing. And this is some great writing uh, about sex uh, by a very intelligent, uh, pretty new writer. I mean, this is kind of the first big project that she's taken on. So I uh, highly recommend the interview and I highly recommend the book. Aaron, if you were going to highly recommend one email newsletter provider, who would it be? Uh, MailChimp. They are so reliable. I enjoy them. When I know uh, my newsletters are getting delivered on a specific day of the week, it's a nice uh, reminder of home, and uh, they never miss them. So thanks, MailChimp. Well, back home, we miss you, man, and uh, good luck out you. there. I'm, hey, I miss you guys. All right. Here's Aaron with right. Emily Witt.
Welcome, Emily Witt. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, I just finished your book, like uh-huh. literally 10 minutes ago. Um, the book is called Future Sex, and it is a culmination of a pretty extended period of your life. I was looking back, and the first time you started writing about futuristic sexuality, uh, it looked like it was like 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I actually got the book deal in 2011. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, t- tell me about where you were actually in 2011 when you were pitching this book. Sure. I was a reporter at the New York Observer. I was covering book publishing mostly. <laughs> um, I actually was hired to cover Wall Street, but they had some editorial changes over there. Yeah. And I knew I didn't want to stay as I didn't want to be a beat reporter. Um, so I was trying to figure out how to get out of that and get, getting a book deal seemed like the best. Had there been a period prior to that where you did want to be a beat reporter? Uh, I went to journalism school and that kind of settled the issue for me. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. What was the, ex- what, what did you experience in journalism school that settled that issue? Well, I, I did the investigative journalism track at Columbia and I just realized I cared too much about writing. I was too interested in the literary aspect of of journalism to be an investigative reporter. And I was too opinionated maybe to be a kind of straight beat newspaper person. Mm. Um, yeah, I wanted to be weirder with my writing and more opinionated and come at things from a more subjective and personal Mm. place. Was that a realization that came to you as a flash or as a slow uh, burn? Probably a slow. Yeah, I wish wish I'd realized that before I went to journalism <laughs> school, but yeah, it was a slow slow understanding, I think. So the book was in some ways like a way to get off of that track for you. Yeah, I mean, I just I knew I wanted to be a freelancer, but I hadn't at that point published in any major magazine. I'd published some things in M plus one that got me a little bit of attention. But getting a book advance was the only way I could quit working and start freelancing. With those N plus one pieces, for someone coming out of a journalism school investigative background, how did you get the first few like weird literary things you did out there? Well, I actually wrote for M plus one before I went to journalism school. So I was a staff writer at the Miami New Times for a couple of years. So I'd come from a kind of alt-weekly background. America's Um, uh, foremost strip club chronicler. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's actually the Broward, (laughs) the Fort Lauderdale one that really gets in there. Yeah. Um, But yeah, and then I was doing, I got a Fulbright and I went to Mozambique for a year and I was writing about these Marxist um, filmmakers there in the 70s. And yeah, I pitched it to N plus one because that's the kind of thing at the time that those editors, Keith Gesson and Mark Greif and um, Marco Roth were interested in and they took it on and edited it a lot. So that was my first article with them. And then... I guess while I was in journalism school, I was already writing a, a longer essay about living in Miami during the real estate boom. Were you? Are you from Miami? No, oh. I'm from Minneapolis. What What brought you to Miami in the first place? That job. That job. Okay. Mm-hmm. So 
you don't need um, like previous uh, cocaine and strip club training to land a job <laughs> in Florida all weekly. No, apparently not. I spoke Spanish. That's where I got the job. Uh, there's yeah. a, there's a reporter there. I think his name's Gus Garcia Roberts. Yeah. Uh, someday someone's gonna do an anthology of his work. It's gonna be called like strip clubs, cocaine, and all weeklies or something. Yeah. Like. I mean, the editor down there really and and fraud. That would probably be the third part of that Venn diagram. Well, that's Florida. Yeah. I mean. That's what's fun about being a reporter there is all of these subcultures converge. I wrote this once that a friend of mine once called Florida America's Funnel. <laughs> and like every kind of scandal, you know, Watergate, whatever it is, it always comes back to Miami in some way. How old were you when you showed up in, my, in Miami for I the was, job? I uh, was 24. What was it like being thrust into a very specific regional American culture as a writer in that way? It was exciting. Miami is like no other American city. Feels like you're in another country, but it's also very distinctly of the United States because it's such a multicultural place. So, yeah, it was exciting. You know, I lived on South Beach. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a bookish, nerdy, pale person, so I didn't exactly fit in, but I had fun going to parties and figuring it out there. <laughs> Being sort of a fish out of water seems like a theme in a lot of your writing, or at least in the way that you present yourself within your writing. Mm. I'm, I'm curious when your writing started to include you, because this book, you are a, a major part of that. When you were in Florida, were you writing about your experiences as being a pale literary person um, living in South Beach at all? No, absolutely not. The New Times had a pretty strict policy about no first person, which was good, I thought. Um, it was good practice at erasing your own opinions from things. And um, So, no, I didn't write about myself at all there. I mean, it wasn't really until M Plus One that I started writing in the first person and and using my experiences as a filter so at that point when you sold the book or the, the where the book starts kind of mm -hmm. you're 30 and single mm -hmm. and if I were to distill your outlook at that point you're kind of like yeah I would like to be married and in a relationship or like be with someone but that's not really happening right now and I'm sort of being exposed to this new form of American identity of sex out of permanent monogamy yeah is that a, is that a fair characterization yeah i mean it's funny when i sold the book it wasn't that at all I oh mean, yeah the, what, what did the pitch look like I'm the curious. pitch was bad i mean i'm amazed i feel really lucky that it got picked up yeah. but i i read thy neighbor's wife by gay talise yeah which if people aren't familiar with it it's kind of a cultural history of the sexual revolution it was published in 1981 and it's very it's it, in the it third has person. Pl plenty, plenty of I in it. Yeah. No. Oh, it sorry. Or uh, plenty of um, personal experiences led to its writing. Right. But he doesn't get into it until That's right. like page 460. There's a reveal where he starts referring to himself. Uh, yeah. To you're, the third uh, you know, I, I'll be honest. I. I think I don't actually think about the text of that book. Like, I, I, there's like a second life to that story that's not the book, but sort of various essays that were written after. There's like a sort of a takedown of it. I think in New York Magazine, and I think that's more what I think of when I think of the book than the actual book itself. Yeah. Were you into the book? Yeah, I loved the book. Or yeah, I mean, it was a little dated. Um, sure. That style of writing, I love all those writers from the 60s and 70s, um, you know, they're my favorites. And 
Um, so yeah, I read that and I just felt I I I saw that a similar shift had taken place. It wasn't nobody was calling it a revolution. Um, felt that the it, it affected women in a kind of more profound way. Um, yeah. And so I kind of pitched this thy neighbor's wife type book about female sexuality. My plan was to not be in it at all. Um, have it be totally reported and kind of modeled on his book. Oh, interesting. So female sexuality was the original lens of the book. Yeah. Um, How long did that last? Well, not very long because, so the editor that bought the book, Mitzi Angel at FSG, she bought it saying, okay, I like this subject. I want you to write this, like, your N plus one articles in that tone, which by then I think I'd published three of those essays and they were all like a little reported, a little essayistic, and and then there was first person in it. So I knew I was going to have to put myself in, but still the first couple drafts of the book were very not personal. And so this idea that it was going to come from this personal place, that came much later. <laughs> it, wasn't, it didn't start out that way. Was the intention always for you to undergo the Talese-like experience of putting yourself around all of this sexuality, even if you weren't going to write about yourself uh, specifically within it? No, I mean, it's funny. I really thought I could just go in and observe yeah. and not participate. And that, and even in the beginning, I think I expressed this a little bit in the book that I thought of myself as this, like, uh, this stuff has nothing to do with me. I'm yeah. just visiting. I'm conventional. I'm conservative. I don't want a crazy sexual existence. Um, it's not what I'm looking for in life. But as I went and looked at stuff, it changed me. And and then that became much more of the story. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Audible. Audible simply has more audiobooks than anywhere on the planet. But they also have amazing original audio content, comedy stuff, podcasty stuff. If you like this show, you will like it kind of stuff. I really recommend uh, checking it out. It's a whole universe of audio content that includes things like Emily Witt, our guest on the show today, reading Future Sex, the book she's talking about on the show, in her own voice. Actually, dozens and dozens of people who've been on long form are on Audible reading their own books in those voices you have come to love. So I want you to go to audible.com slash longform. You'll get a 30-day free trial. So you can start listening today without spending any money. A 30-day free trial. Again, audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E.com slash longform. Support this show, get a 30-day free trial, and start listening today. We are supported additionally today by Wonder Capital. What if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the United States. Wonder's online investment platform allows you to earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Your investment in Wonder's fully managed solar investment funds goes directly to helping U.S. small and medium-sized businesses install solar panels. Quiz here. Who has a solar panel on her roof? My mother. 
And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. So create an account today for free at wondercapital.com slash longform. That's W-U-N-D-E-R capital.com slash longform. You'll be supporting the show, supporting solar energy, and all sorts of other good stuff. Thank you, Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Here I am back with Emily Witt. There's a lot of different geographic spaces within the book. Your experiences in the book range from uh, Tinder dating to going to extreme group sex uh, pornography tapings. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to use the wrong term for something at some point. You can, that sounds you can right. Fla- you can flag it. So, yeah. you know, one of those things is a very, like, normal thing for people to be doing in, in 2016, which is, like, dating on their iPhone. Yeah. And one of those things is, like, a, a fairly extreme place to be. I mean, I'm curious in these different contexts how you presented yourself and did you draw a line between, like, I'm doing this for the book and I'm just doing this? Yeah, I mean, again, it was a little messy. I mean, with the internet dating, it was messy. Yeah. Because I, again, at that point, still didn't think I was really going to write about myself until I wrote something about internet dating and published it in the London Review Books. And I published it. I didn't even think that was going to be in the book. Yeah. Um, but then it got a pretty good response, and people wanted me to, to include it. Was it a deliberate strategy to have these little bits of book-related stuff coming out year after year and kind of build it. I mean, I don't know if anyone else has caught that momentum. but Broke. <laughs> but for me, I, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I you know, I read this stuff pretty regularly, and I kind of came to know you as a person who wrote about this stuff. And not that many people write about this stuff, honestly. Or not yeah. that many people write about this stuff and come back to it more than once. So by the time it was 2015, I thought you were the world expert on huh. these topics just because they're not really r- written about that much. Did the reaction you got to those initial pieces end up changing what the book was? Yeah, it made me more confident in the tone. I, it helped me figure out how, what voice to use and how to explore it. And, you know, just I was publishing as I went along because I needed the money. But it was really hard to get all of those pieces published. A couple of them were killed by magazines, uh, the kinky pornography one was killed and the burning man one was killed really yeah i I think of those as pretty i mean i have a kind (laughs) of a skewed opinion because i sit and look at the long form analytics but having looked at like what gets clicked on in long form i would be commissioning sex pieces in every issue if i was a magazine editor because they're extremely popular anything that even uses the word sex in it will three or four times the normal click-through rate yeah, I don't know. I mean, when I pitched, I won't name the magazine, but when I pitched um, the article about BDSM pornography, that was the subject. And as I went writing it, you know, they started getting really, you know, I remember one draft where all of these words were kind of highlighted, like fisting. <laughs> <laughs> And they didn't want me to use those words. They were, they, they were looking getting, for a synonym for fisting? I don't know what they thought they were getting into, but I think they thought some kind of feminist, I don't know, mm. something a little more established. I don't think they realized what they were getting into. Interesting. Um, they thought it was going to be maybe some burlesque type <laughs> experience. I don't know. <laughs> um, 
So you described the online dating part, which is a big part of the book, and you described those relationships as messy uh, that you sort of generated while you were working on the book. Yeah. I mean, online dating, I published that as a little essay about my personal experience with it that quickly, I think, became, you know, that was published in when, I think, 2013. Yeah. Um, so that was very quickly obsolete, I, I felt, the things that I said. So when I went back later in the book, you know, trying to think of what really needed to be said about online dating, it, it changed. And I just kind of used that primary source material to look at how the stories I was telling myself about romance, how I was presenting myself sexually, or in this case, not presenting myself as a sexual person, what it meant to look for a sexual relationship by trying to talk about books and movies and the kind of fundamental dishonesty in that. Um, so I went back and rewrote that. And same with the pornography chapter. The piece on pornography that I published in N Plus One didn't really say anything about it. Um, I kind of observed this scene of BDSM, but I didn't, I couldn't figure out, you know, what the question was about it and what was important. So the book evolved. Those pieces changed as I went back and kept writing. I mean, how did you think about rewriting some of these um, chapters to include yourself? Because I think you you really appear in almost every chapter of the book now. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of it was really hard. You know, I didn't want to. Wa- I didn't want to write about m- my experience watching pornography. It's embarrassing. Is I mean, is it? I I couldn't. I felt like by the end, I was like, she must be pretty confident in this stuff. Go. I got practiced at it, but yeah. I, I, you know, in the beginning, I'm I'm from the Midwest. <laughs> I'm pretty. <laughs> I'm pretty shy. In the beginning, it was hard for me to even ask people questions about sexuality, you know. And then I got better at that and not being embarrassed. And then, you know, basically at one point, one of my, you know, sitting down with Mitzi, my editor, and she's just like, you can't, you have to go there. If you're not, if you're not going to reveal this about yourself, this book is just going to be skimming and skimming along the surface of of experience and not saying anything really different or more honest. So it was not easy and and I also just didn't what do you say about internet porn? Like it was really hard to think of something to say. It's strange <laughs> to have a experience that's profound. I mean I like I assume that if you examine my brain with some sort of a extremely fine-tuned sensor they'd be like wow there's, there's a lot of porn like a lot porn has like left a bunch of neural pathways. Uh, in this person's brain, but I've never, I've never had a um, intellectual thought about porn that I've particularly wanted <laughs> to share with anyone. Yeah, well, I noticed that when when it was written about, either it was the New York Times, which just pretended nobody's ever watched it and assumes a lack of familiarity, or it's New York Magazine, where it's like we're all watching porn all the time, we're all really cool with it. Yeah. The article I usually see is. We sent one of our reporters to a swing party. It was so crazy. All these people were having gross group sex. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah. And there's some of that in your experiences, which I don't like. You go to San Francisco, and I don't think you totally identify with many of the people who are part of this stuff. Like, I'm curious in the chapter you have about orgasmic meditation, 
the woman from who who runs the Ohm Center keeps being like, "You're a skeptic," <laughs> and so I can tell, sort of based on your attitude and also the way that people react to you, that it's not like you slid in and we're in a costume and we're pretending to be an enthusiastic uh, orgasmic meditator. Yeah. How did you present yourself in these places? Well, I mean, so as the book project evolved, it became the question I realized I was trying to answer was what should I do with my sexual freedom? I felt trapped in this traditional relationship model that I had expected my life to turn out to fall into. Um, And so I was visiting these communities really earnestly with you know, taking them very seriously as possibilities. You know, at first I might not have even wanted to admit that to myself, but as time went on, it became very clear that, you know, I knew I didn't want to be stuck turning 40 and feeling just, like, super depressed because I wasn't married and didn't have a brownstone and children and, like, a shared Google calendar with my husband. Like I I knew that I I wanted to find a way out of that. And so the only way to go was was to see what else was out there. And yeah, even when I was kind of freaked out by stuff or not comfortable, I was taking these communities really seriously and what they had to say as genuine possibilities. And you know, at the end of the day, the project of the book was trying to find a way of being in the world that acknowledges and embraces the advancements in technology that we have, the the changes in social mores, the longer amount of time that we spend outside of marriage, and sees all that as a place of possibility instead of a place of like a thing to a cultural problem to lament, which most of the magazine articles I was reading would ultimately be really like, oh, these days. Yeah, teens today, yeah, dick pics like, central. Like hookup cultures, taking away intimacy from sexuality. Yeah. And- I mean, what do you think about that kind of writing? Or how did you make your book distinct from that? What, what were you thinking about when you when you see an Apple, uh, a story like, I, I'm not even talking about a specific story, I'm talking about a specific mold of a story, which is generally like, Everything is to the disadvantage of young women. Every development is kind of a like, and another terrible plot twist for young women. And that's an easy thing to get into. I mean, I think of it as almost similar to the way technology reporting can sometimes just be, oh, God, the, like it's so bad. You know, technology is so bad. And I guess I'm curious, when you remove the conclusion of something being good or bad, what kind of conclusions can you draw as a writer? Yeah, I mean, those articles made me feel trapped in an, in a certain ideology. They never seem to offer, you know, the outcome of the, all of those articles that I was reading was there was no mode of sexual expression for a young woman that wasn't somehow her sexuality being dictated by a young man. And so part of it was just not writing about young people <laughs> yeah. because being a young person is hard. The sex that you have probably maybe it's the best sex you're ever going to have. But I think for a lot of young people, it's a time where it's really hard. You're figuring things out. You don't know what you like yet. You're you're encountering dishonesty maybe for the first time or 
you know, you're just realizing it's not a Disney movie and and that all these things, all these stories you were told might not be the way life is. So, yeah, it's a hard time of life. And I don't think that has anything to do with Tinder. Um, <laughs> maybe, but... Well, um, I think that those kind of stories often use the youth of the women involved as anything that happens sexually that's not great to, like, a 16-year-old person. There's a certain, like power imbalance there's just like a you're primed to feel sympathy for a 16 year old girl who's had this bad sexual experience but then when you transplant the same person to twice as old 32 all of the stakes seem to change a lot yeah and i you know personally i'd like to think of myself as not this emotionally fragile being where one depressing sexual encounter (laughs) fills me with despair it's just not you know, yeah, being in your 20s is hard, but I wanted to look at the possibility, yeah. And, and yeah, I wanted to make sure that I was never, you know, so part of my self-examination of the stories I was telling myself about why something might be good or bad for me was a way to, yeah, try to step outside of that. When someone like Gay Talese wrote um, Thy Neighbor's Wife, um, as you said, revealed late in the book, he like, jumped in full intensity there there was not a lot of remove in his experiences when you're doing a kind of reporting that's experiential that's about being there how do you decide where you want to stand and how close and how participatory you want to be in what's happening it was hard i mean you know i don't think like i followed all the new york times rules <laughs> necessarily but for example i write about um i don't even know what the new york times rules are in either, that situation. well i mean i know, know there are certain things you can't do but yeah. they don't really tell you what to do well for example I, I write about these three polyamorists that are in a relationship with each other or with one another which one is it each other um and they invited me to one of their sex parties, which they throw on a regular basis. And I knew that I couldn't just like sit there in a corner I didn't, notepad. with a notebook. And I didn't want to either. I was genuinely interested in the experience, but I- There's several know. times in the book where you're like, there was no way I could have a notepad during this experience. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be a dominant memory. Yeah. Are you a big note taker to begin with? Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I try to, yeah, jot things down as I go. It's nice now that we have iPhones because you can just kind of like, write some iPhone notes and look like you're texting or looking at your email or something. What kind of details are you looking for in, in when you're allowed to have a, a notepad? Let's I, say at a, a group sex party, if you actually had sat in the corner with the right. notepad. The main thing is just details, visual details. So I'll just list. I don't need to write. So just listing what somebody was wearing, what song was played, what what something that somebody said that was funny, you know, and I'll just... Like at the end of the day, if I'm tired and I don't feel like writing up, it's just a list. I just make a list. One of the things I think you do very effectively in the book is, in the case of that ohm scene, you describe maybe three or four people. And from those four people, I'm able to extrapolate all of the people in the room. I grew up in the Bay Area, so I'm uh, very I'm very familiar yeah. with the milieu you're talking about. And yeah. you give a few descriptions, and then you can kind of start filling in with your imagination in the rest of the room. So, but you get invited to the sex party. Yeah, what so, do you what do you say to that? So, I uh, you know, the main rule was they didn't want their friends to be written about without they didn't want to announce that I was that there was a reporter in the room because then like nobody would Yeah. 
do anything. So we agreed that I wasn't going to write about anybody in a way that identified them. Or, And then I said, I'm not making out with the three of you. Because <laughs> they, they were the people that I had been yeah. writing about. And I just, yeah, I thought maybe that preserved some <laughs> but 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 so it was like not you but boundary. like uh, strangers fine like people who are subjects of the book not yeah, fine yeah so you did go you you went to the party i went to the party yeah got naked made out with somebody and i don't i'm, I'm having trouble figuring out exactly what my question is here but like yeah. what was what was what's the experience of like of experiencing something and also experiencing it for your note taking i mean does does it is that like a third kind of an experience yeah i mean it wasn't great writing a book about sex and like having relationships and stuff during did, oh so you did have relationships right? i had a boyfriend like at that point i had a boyfriend and it was it wasn't great. It was. <laughs> Tell <laughs> he, me more. Well, he didn't want me to go to sex parties. He didn't. He didn't want to go to no. the sex party like, with you. Oh, I didn't want him to come with me because I was kind of working. Right. You know? And you already um, had those other three people who are off the list. <laughs> it becomes a very tangled uh, web of do's and don'ts. Yeah, and, it just kind of, and it it meant that I was always never sure when I was going to write about something and when I wasn't, and I feel really free now that the book is done. <laughs> Yeah. And I know that whatever I do it's just my life now. I'm not I'm not trying to uh this I think this is interesting for people who write books where they have to experience things when you're in a relationship and very literally the like the act of being in a relationship almost contradicts the premise of the book. Mm-hmm. How did you negotiate that with with a partner? You'll notice that the book most of the internet dating stuff happens in like the early part of book 12 and yeah. 2013 so he it's funny we broke up like as soon as i finished the book i don't know it, he, he was only in it for the book related conflict i don't know i think i was it was more me that somehow i needed to shut down in order to actually write about this stuff i had to stop dating um yeah. and stop kind of freeze things in time otherwise things kept changing and then I would have to rewrite parts or my ideas kept changing so there's a way in which being in a relationship allowed me to create this kind of like chamber and I kind of heightened it by going to Berlin for a year so I was basically kind of celibate while I was writing the the last revisions of the book because it was just really hard to experience life while I was trying to process these ideas about um, relationships. and It's something I've heard from musicians before that there are people who are, when they're working on an album, don't listen to any other music because it's just, it's too much to start taking in new ideas, particularly new music. Um, what was that processing experience like when you had done everything and needed to turn it into a finished book? I mean, it was really difficult. I, You know, it's by far the most difficult writing experience I've had. I mean, I guess everybody probably says that about writing a book. But, for example, the Internet Pornography chapter. I mean, I just sat there for two months in a room, like... Streaming pornography 24 <laughs> hours a sometimes, day. Sometimes, you yeah. know, sometimes, but... 
but watching it didn't help me figure out what to say about it or um that's i i would not have expected to <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you know in the context of the relationship i was in too these questions about monogamy i mean i i think i came out of the book not um no longer glorifying monogamy or seeing it as a particularly beautiful kind of commitment or and yeah it was hard because my boyfriend didn't feel the same way so I was kind of considering these questions in an ideological space but then having trouble applying them in my life and it's still it's still that way it's like did you meet uh, I mean I don't want to ask you too much about like every like who were all the people you dated but did you also meet men who were attracted to the idea of a woman writing an experiential sex memoir of a sort? Well, it really surprised me. I think I had always thought that, you know, maybe this is, again, like coming from a little bit of a kind of waspy Protestant background, that if I presented myself as overtly sexual in any way, it would be a huge turnoff, that nobody would they would see me as a certain kind of person. They wouldn't have respect for me. And I and I, I thought this both professionally, like I thought maybe writing this book was going to be really bad for my career, that nobody would take me seriously anymore, and also that nobody would want to date me if I was too honest. Um, in both counts, the opposite happened. Tell me more about that. Just going through this process of self-inquiry about my sexuality made me so much more confident and so much less insecure. I worry a lot less about how people think of me. um, And apparently that makes for a more attractive (laughs) prospect when you're out dating. I mean, yeah, like my whole dating life got better through the process of doing this for sure, which is kind of a weird thing. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, like (laughs) I I hate to keep coming back to the Talese thing, but it is a very interesting has any have people written like books this book between your two books? Is there like a um, um, 1990s like uh, uh, grunge sex kind of book? There was like a lot of like cyber sex books. So there was um, this woman named Lisa Pollock wrote a book, but no, I don't know. The 90s it seemed like a weird time for sexuality because of HIV, because oh, of the. I guess kind of growing consciousness about date rape and and a lot of those issues. It it just seems like it was a pretty conservative sexual time. So after you experienced something of this transformation, do you look at the book as sort of like a thing that happened to you in the past or do you think of it as sort of a document of, of who you are now? No, it's definitely in my past, yeah. unfortunately, because I have to talk about it for the next six months. I mean, I'm guessing <laughs> that you're, like, thinking about new stuff now. Like, you want to, like, write things that are not about sex. Like, are you able to turn a corner from it? Yeah. It's really like, swallowed, like, a pretty big chunk of your life. Yeah, it was – I mean, I was writing about other stuff while I was doing this. But, yeah, I'm I'm in a little bit of an existential crisis right now. Or not – you know, I just – I don't know what to write about next. And, and, yeah, it took up so much of my energy. And it was the the only thing I thought about, really, for five years. So, I, I, yeah, I have to figure out my next project. And it's hard to know if you should just, like, write some magazine articles or – Go straight into another book. Were there curiosities that you had while you were writing the book that you put on hold? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so much stuff that I wish I could have written during yeah. that time that 
especially I didn't think it was going to take me this long. So there, you know, I would tell, and and it was funny. <laughs> when was this book originally supposed to be due? <laughs> uh, 2013, I think, yeah, or 2014. Uh, was that stressful? No, they they understood that it just, it was just going to take that long. And I didn't have a big advance, so I had to, I was writing all the time. And as a result, my freelance career was established also during the time that I was writing the book. So before, when I got the book deal, I hadn't published in any real major magazine, and now I've written for all of them. Yeah. Um, the frustration was that for the first time in my life, all of these magazines that I'd always wanted to write for were writing me and asking me to pitch and offering assignments, and I kept having to turn them down. You wrote a story for The New Yorker during that time about Arrowit, am I pronouncing that That's correctly? Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, which is a repository of drug experiences, or it's, it's many things, but it's known high traffic um, areas that and there was a quote in it that I thought kind of echoed some of the stuff in the book. One of the founders of Arrowhead says that they sort of, they wanted to be uh, the straight among the weirdos and like the weirdo among the straights. Right. And that to me, it seems like a, a theme in some of your reporting um, of, of wanting to embody that duality. Yeah, I mean, the project that I think I'm now on is I like looking for cultural sites of dishonesty or I don't know quite how to explain it, but where the story that we're telling ourselves about our lives, in this case the way that we talk about drugs has nothing to do with reality. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and it was the same with sexuality. The kind of story was off. It was obsolete. And yet we were all still telling ourselves the same story. So, And to, to get on the other side of that means hanging out with people that mainstream culture considers weird. And you know, people that are experimenting. And a lot of those experiments are going to be failures. But some of them might be right. And, you know, you look at something like polyamory, you know, that was a word that, you know, barely existed 20 years ago. And now it's like a mainstream word. And the people that first did it were like these pagan, you know, really like far out people. Um, And now it's like kind of a mainstream idea. And I think in the next five years, it's going to become like really mainstream. So uh, that's what I'm always looking for is kind of. And yeah, it it helps, I guess, that I'm a little, that I take everything really seriously. <laughs> uh, it helps the skeptics trust me to explain the weirdos. And then it helps, like, the weirdos let me in and know that I'm going to respect their ideas. How do you catch these weirdos in the wild? <laughs> like, um, By I'm, accident. There's, there's a lot of pretty unusual, like, you could have picked a lot of different topics for the book. And there's a logic to sort of each one, I think, unlocks a different part of that lie that you're describing. Um, But how do you find a dominatrix from public humiliation? How how did you source? How did you find the sources for this book? Um, Mostly by accident. It was that was a friend. A friend of mine had a friend who worked at Kink. And he said, oh, you should look up this woman, Princess Donna Delore. She's a director and. Um, so I just got out there. I knew I needed to go to San Francisco, that it would be easier to find a certain kind of person there. Um, 
But even that was sometimes kind of, too easy to find a second yeah. person. <laughs> but even that was kind of accidental. I mean, part of it was just I didn't have any money. I was constrained by time. Were you like doing gig? Like, what? What were you? How were you supporting yourself once you were out of? I mean, I can't imagine that um, advance money lasted more than a year or two. Well, it was kind of budgeted out, so I would get like ten thousand dollars for a year, you know. So, which would allow me to work for like a month or two or help me. But I just had to freelance a lot. I mean, I wrote a lot and I was doing ad copywriting. I was doing kind of whatever I could. But, you know, I made like $35,000 in 2014. Like it was and and there was a lot of times where I didn't keep an apartment or I would go home for a while or um, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in the book. At the start, you're like, I'm worried I don't have like a brownstone or a stable existence. <laughs> and then the book like strongly like, destabilizes what <laughs> little stability you have. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, the first thing I did when I finished was sign a lease for the first time. And, and it felt really great. Yeah. Um, it does seem like some of these trends, though, I mean, the economics of a generation do trickle down to its sex life, I would think. Like people who don't have as stable careers and housing, it affects like the planning you make around relationships. Like you can't read this book and think of sex as this singular isolated decision. It it feels like very much uh, a product of this period in American technology, culture. Um, Did you feel an obligation to address the roots of this stuff? I don't know that I did that yeah. very well. It was hard for me because it was hard for me to write about that without st- maybe sounding self-pitying or something when I, I am a person of privilege. You yeah, know? So absolutely. I didn't want to go there. I mean, the, I guess I talk a little bit about it in the chapter about babies feeling frustrated with this idea of, oh, I, I'm going to choose to have kids like – it never felt like I could just make that choice. My life is just, it would not allow for that. It, or whatever, I could have a kid, but it would suck. It would be really, I wouldn't be able to do my job anymore. I would have to take on a different career. I would have to leave New York City, all of which are, you know, choices people make all the time. But, you know, I, I didn't focus so much on the economic reality, but it definitely... It's there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm curious what you think doing this book would have been like as a man. Yeah. I or wonder. it was, I mean, I don't, that's kind of a weird question, but no. did you think about what would a male reporter or how would a male reporter be treated differently doing the, these exact same things? I never thought about that. I, what I did think about is that I would want to read a similar examination from a male perspective of all of these things, of everything, of internet dating, internet porn, polyamory, what it's like to think about, I don't know, co-parenting. I mean, I always wonder what straight, you know, I know several straight women that have had babies on their own. And I always wonder what guys, if that makes them feel insecure or anything. You know, I don't know. (laughs) I think I was think. I think I my curiosity around that is the story that that has a a thousand identities about um, everything being shitty for girls. Yeah. You said that your book was originally sold as being about female sexuality, which it becomes much broader than. But simply by the nature of you being a woman 
having all these experiences, it is more about the experiences of women around sex than it is about the men. And I think that for me was actually what made it interesting. I was interested in even some of the more banal stuff just because I haven't really heard many women write about sex who are not, I don't, I don't want to be sort of reductive, but sort of like um, sex columnist, like women who are like, I know everything about sex. Like yeah. you don't hear sort of, um, common denominator sexual uh, writing very much in the world, especially, I guess, from a woman? Yeah. Uh, you know, just among my friends, men, my male friends are so much, they joke about masturbation together. They joke about pornography. They, they're they much more overt about when they're turned on by something. They'll say it. And even with my close female friends, we don't talk about stuff like that. So, you know, like a dude can read Boswell, you know, and get a lot of like, there isn't the same long history of sexual escapades being told from a woman's perspective. Um, So there's just a lot of room for writing there. I mean, there's just a lot, a lot of people are going to write more books about being a woman and being sexually free because it's still, there's just a lot of room. There's a lot of stories that can still be told there. You can't read the book and not sort of reflect on your own sexuality while you're reading it. Have you been getting different responses from men and women to the book? You know, I don't know that people tell me. <laughs> I, I generally avoid the internet. Like, yeah. So I, I don't avoid the internet, but I avoid reading stuff about me on the internet. And so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to be. I'm kind of closing my eyes and not I don't, I don't want to know it's too personal for me you um, have a brother who wrote a book this year that's yes that's right yeah uh, last 2015 year maybe. Yeah, yeah about um music piracy that's right uh-huh are you a literary family uh, a did little you grow bit. up did you grow up with a writer parent yeah so my dad when i was growing up my dad was editor of the feature section of the sunday magazine of the minneapolis star tribune and then he edited Minnesota Monthly, it's a regional magazine. So, yeah, we had a lot of writers. Your brother around. was, like, doing something else and then went to writing, right? Yeah, and then my mom... Um, Were you pissed off, like, when you already had a book deal and then he, like, oh my came God. in and, like, beat you to publication? I mean, <laughs> I want to say... I wish I could say no, but the truth was that it would, was really hard If for my me. sister did that, it would be over between us. Yeah, I mean, it was it was hard. Also because his book deal was ten times the size of mine, and... I'd been writing for 10 years, and when he got his book deal, he'd never published anything really (laughs) anywhere. Um, So, yeah, I got really – it was hard. You know, he's my biggest supporter. He's always read everything I write. It wasn't his fault, but it did feel unfair. Uh, One of my friends compared me to Jennifer Grey and Ferris (laughs) Bueller's (laughs) tale. Except he's older than me, so it doesn't quite scan. At least he's older than you. If he was younger than you, this story would turn tragic. But yeah, it it was really hard for me. Also because his book, people kept saying oh, you two are just really different kinds of writers. And the way You're that... like, yeah, I'm experienced and he's not. Well, that's how I... <laughs> I mean, you said that. <laughs> um, but, you know, the way that I always 
read that was like, oh, he's building a bridge and I'm doing an arts and crafts project. And, and that's how it played out financially. That's how my parents treated it. And yeah, it was really hard. And, you know, I guess I wondered if there was some gendered stuff in there. You know, he's against that line of thought. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I actually really like your brother's book, so I'm not, I don't want me to say anything negative about it, but, um, to me, writing a book about your own and um, people leading experimental, sexually experimental lives is like a lot bolder. It's a lot harder um, to do thing to do with your life than you know write an excellent non research nonfiction book. Was it strange to be dealing with your family like at Thanksgiving dinner and people are like, "How's your sex book going, Emily?" Yeah, I mean, we kind of just stopped talking about it. <laughs> That burn, I wrote this thing about Burning Man um, where I was pretty – it was the first time that I really published something where I was like, I had sex with this guy, and yeah. then I had sex with this guy, and then I did this drug. And, yeah, that didn't go down very well. Do you have, like, one really terrible relative who's, like, putting these on your family Facebook or something? That would be my fear. Not, not just my parents, but that it, like, somehow got into the, like, algorithm loop. I mean, I just wish none of them – had to read it but they're all gonna read it so yeah i've kind of i think we've worked through it but yeah i mean it's it is a really bookish family my my mom indexes books she makes book indexes my dad's an editor my grandmother was a librarian one of my aunts is a librarian so did your dad like line edit your stories like no, aggressively? Okay, definitely I've, we've, not. We've heard a few times on this show like people who get marked up copy from their parents back who who, who have editor parents. No, I never send him drafts. It's just, it's just got all the sex parts crossed <laughs> yeah, out. It's, exactly. like a, it's like a redacted FBI <laughs> document that only has several exposed sentences on it. Uh huh. Yeah, exactly. That's how it would be too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no. I mean, the nice thing about having parents that work in this space is they can really appreciate your accomplishments, and they're really proud of both of us. And and Stephen, it's Stephen worked in finance before he went into journalism, but. But he was all. It was weird that he was in finance, and he was always a. Yeah, that could be just as uncomfortable topic as uh, having sex at Burning Man. And <laughs> well, in a way, there's just no respect for it in my family. <laughs> That's it's awesome. Kind of funny. <laughs> so yeah, it was always kind of like, is he happy? Uh, so he he's doing what he should be doing. Um, so yeah. Do you have any tips for writers who need to write about something that's going to be? like horribly weird and embarrassing with their family? Or if you had it differently, would have you done it any differently? No, I wouldn't do it different. I mean, for me, it was really, in the end, a really positive experience to, for the first time, not be obedient and not be the good daughter. And it was the first time I stepped outside of my family's expectations. And it's good to try stuff like that. You know, I mean, my family still loves me. It's, it all worked out. So, yeah. yeah. It all works out. That's, yeah. good, that's good advice. And and then you also have respect for people that, you know, have to do that in a much less pleasant way, you know? Yeah. Just or because maybe of who less, they are. Less and they voluntary have, way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how difficult. And, I mean, I just have a lot of respect for people that have actually really shifted their politics or their religion or their sexuality from what they were raised with it you know i did it in this very minor way but well right on thank you very much emily witt thank you 
That was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to Emily Witt. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, for holding down the fort. Uh, thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thank you to our intern, Courtney Harrell. Thank you to our incredible sponsors, MailChimp, Audible, and Wonder Capital. Uh, we'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.